0: Whether you already have a SaaS or are considering to enter the field, how can you become an investor who runs multiple SaaS products instead of bootstrapping one and and building it from scratch? How do you decide what to buy and how do you keep focus on each asset? And when do you decide to sell? Michael Bereslowski runs a private equity fund called Domain Magnet, and he will share with us his setup as well as tips for both buyers and sellers of SaaS businesses. Welcome back to the Product Stories Podcast, hosted by Victor Peralnik. This podcast helps founders like yourself to find leaner ways to build successful SaaS products.
1: Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, Victor. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, I've been looking forward to this one. Um, It's dark where you are. Where
1: are you based? I am based currently in Chiang Mai, Thailand, so it's evening here
0: how long have you been there
1: Uh, about five six years now nice uh, i used to live in israel and then i traveled a little bit around the world and uh, settled down here
0: very good choice and you do that because you can't you run a small private equity fund how how big how big is the firm how many people do you have what does it do
1: yeah good questions so the main magnate It's a small private equity firm. We buy, manage, and uh, set up small funds and and acquire online businesses, primarily content and occasionally SaaS businesses. And so we have a team of 11 people now, and uh, also probably around 15 other people we work with on a freelance basis and uh, a couple agencies. And we have a few clients and we manage about, usually about 10 to 15 uh, different businesses at, at the same time
0: cool that's impressive for for uh it's also not a small team but uh indeed it's remote first
1: yeah uh, it's all remote we've, we've always been remote i've actually only met like one or two of my employees before <laughs>
0: are they so far away
1: yeah yeah it's it's all over we had one only one other person in uh, who is also based in thailand but uh we we have a part of the team based in, in India, uh, some people based in, in Pakistan, some in Europe, all over Eastern Europe, Western Europe. At least one person in the US from the from the core team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's quite uh, it's quite a big mix. It's actually really even though we only have about um, well on, only eleven people, it's it's actually really difficult to get everyone together at the same time to have a group call because. Somebody is always going to be at like four or five a.m. So usually when we do it, I have to see, okay, who do we put at four a.m. this time?
0: Oh, yeah. That's, that's very tricky indeed. <laughs> I feel you. We're, we're somewhat around that size. And we, we also have every person is literally in a different country, which I, I know that it makes it really hard to organize a get together luckily we're sort of in a similar time zone but still you know, the, the distance between is is just too much well, um,
1: I, I was I was curious what what would be your strategy who do you put at the at the least comfortable slot would like would it be like someone who is always like less important than the, <laughs> in the company or, or someone <laughs> who who is just like wake up early usually
0: <laughs> I'm luckily not in that situation because we're all around the European time it's just that's one person is in South Africa, the other is uh, in Ukraine, uh, and so that is just super, super far away. But the time zone is, is very much aligned, luckily. If if that was not the case, probably, probably I don't know, it might be just random. Write a small generator, and you know whoever is unlucky, you know <laughs> that's on you. <laughs> but I do see it for you. It's also a lot of you know India and Pakistan, which is more in your region, so for you to decide to hire in that area as opposed to me where it's a lot of, you know, Eastern Europe, Portugal, South Africa. Was that also a region or a time zone decision or was there something else as well?
1: Uh, No, we never actually looked at the region and time zone. We just looked at the fit for the role, fit for the team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The the main person, the main manager on the team is actually based in the US. So that's that's a terrible... uh,
0: Oh, they have a hard job. Fit too. in
1: terms, like in terms of times, <laughs> and it's terrible because it's always hard for me to schedule calls with him. <laughs> it's going to be either like evening or morning. Yeah, it's more of the fit for the role and uh, and the team and uh, the general skills and and qualities for people. I've never really looked at it from the times zone perspective, mm-hmm. but uh, I realized that I probably should have paid more attention to that. So I, I do think if I if I do it again or if I had a chance to to realign that I would definitely try to make it more time zone aligned. There is benefit to people being on the same time zone because otherwise, um, nowadays what happens often is like a person who is in us would, would write a message to a person who is in India and then that person would respond like the next day and so on. So there is uh, incongruence in the, in the time zones. So the communication is, is, is often not so direct. Uh, of course, People can schedule a time where they can talk, where they can meet and so on. But still, it's so fun, like morning here, evening here. So it does create Some challenges.
0: Yeah, personally, I, I feel like six, seven hours, is sort of the, the sweet spot where you can still easily deal with it. We have like one or two hours of overlap, maybe three, depending how people get up and work, starting from eight hours where, you know, that's usually a person's working day that's just over. That's when it starts to get really difficult. But yeah, wrapping this up and, and diving into our our main topic of sorts. One question that I was curious about, how do you become an investor? Because I understand, just to clarify, you run a fund, which means that's not usually not your private money that you're putting in, but you're actually going out to investors, to other investors, to give money to your fund, and you then allocate that capital, right? And you operate the businesses.
1: Right, so to be clear, these are not technically funds under the the SEC regulations, Mm -hmm. so we don't really call them funds. We just call them group buys, and Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's set up uh, anyone anyone can join. The minimum is usually between fifty to one hundred thousand dollars, and well, not not completely anyone. We we have actually two rules. The one rule is that the person has to. To have some experience with, with online businesses, some sort of, uh, some sort of understanding of how it all works and also understanding the risks. So when we accept investors, we, we check in with them to make sure that they understand how it all works. Because sometimes people come from, like from real estate or from, from some completely different, different scene and they have no idea what an online business is. They have no idea of what the risks are, how to evaluate risks. And so I make sure that they, have a good grasp on that because, uh, for example, if you buy real estate, like it's really difficult to lose most of your money, right? If you buy a property, sure you could, you know, there could be a recession, you could lose half of it or something, but losing 80% of your money would be very rare. Like you have to try very hard. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and with, with online businesses, it's, it's, it happens. I mean, not, not very common, not often, but it, it certainly happens. So that's something to be aware
0: And that makes sense as in who you accept as an investor into your fund-like structure, if you want to call it that. And how did you end up with the idea of accepting other people's money, buying assets? How did you get there?
1: Yeah. um, So I've been personally involved in this business for, well, since about 2003, 2004. And um, I've been building sites, buying sites, building all kinds of different businesses. Like I had some sales uh projects as well early on and then gradually I started buying more and more and bigger sites as I as I acquired more capital and at some point I, uh, and, and and I was going to conferences like speaking at events and so on and talking to people and often people started approaching me and asking how can I invest with you mm. and so for a few years I didn't really have anything to tell them but just say okay um I'll I'll let you know and then just forget about it and and then at some point about three years ago, I decided that it's time to to start looking at how to how to do that, how to work with investors. I had no idea how it works, but I had a few deals where I didn't have enough capital, and and really good deals. And I was kind of upset that I uh, let them sleep because I couldn't arrange the funds quickly enough. And so the first thing I did literally was Google, you know, how do you set up a fund? How do you work with investors? Because <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. And then I talked to, to a few people I knew in the industry and and they gave me some advice, some good advice, some not so good advice. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know which was either, which was which. So <laughs> I followed them all <laughs> more or less and made some mistakes and um, did some good things too. And then eventually we started out, we found our first investor and he wanted us to, to, I like to buy one site and that went well. So that investor brought in his brother and then his other brother, and then they brought in their sister. (laughs) And that (laughs) turned into our first family fund. And It was literally a family fund. And uh, (laughs) and so that was our first fund. And we also wrote a public case study on it on our website. If anyone is interested, they can look it up. Uh, Just go to domainmagnate.com. Actually, I don't remember the exact URL, but if you just Google fund one results, domain magnate, you Mm -hmm. would find it. Wow. And so that's how they set it up, and the latest iteration of that is the group buy. and we we sent the details to our list, and we told people this is how it will work. This is these are the conditions to join. People join in, they send money, they sign a quick agreement, and then we set up the LLC and allocate the, the equity for it.
0: That makes sense. So every every fund is an LLC where people join probably as shareholders, and you do as well and you operate it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What, is the, what is the usual, or what is the return of the latest fund? Is that a figure you share publicly?
1: For the latest fund, we don't actually have a return yet because it's, it's pretty new. It's, uh, it was started earlier this year. For the first one, we did share our um, fund one results. So it had a return of 103% in uh, two and a half years. So, so like 203% return on the investment, meaning moment double, uh, but uh, the return to investors was 137 percent So like from an investor perspective, it was roughly 15% per year, sort of like reasonable. And uh, that was our first fund. Our second fund is uh, doing quite well, it's smaller, but, uh, and it only had two, two assets would we required. And we've been able to grow them more than three times. So that should have quite a good return in less than two years.
0: These are nice numbers. So that's good. What do you think the the biggest leverage here is in the operations? Do you think it's you know doing all all these assets, running them with the one team and not you know wasting resources on setting up a lot of teams? Or do you not really see that as that much of a leverage at all, but it's more really on the marketing, being able to really, uh, so not operational costs or things like that, but also really being able to grow the assets? Yes.
1: Yeah, so we try to develop leverages like that in a few different areas. Uh, first of all, just in general, the, this, this whole industry of, of buying businesses is quite lucrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially recently since the prices have come down in the past six months or so. And so you can generally buy a, a content business for uh, about two and a half to three times the annual profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sales businesses tend to be a little more expensive. Uh, the pricings are different. But what that tells you is that means that the return could be so like 30 to 40% annually just uh you know if the business is doing well and, and profiting and so on. So that already gives you quite a bit of a margin. But but then of course there is the risks that, that you have to be aware of. And then on top of that of course we we have our own advantages. One of them is we have our private deal flow. So you really focus on finding the best deals we can find that are generally private, not the ones that are listed in the marketplaces. Uh, and uh, people often come to us because we have a good reputation and a good brand. And then we, of course, we have the team which, which can do things quite quite effectively, and uh, and they're good at SEO and growing businesses. So we've have really worked a lot on improving and constantly uh, making things more effective there. And we've also developed all kinds of advantages in monetizing these businesses. So we have uh, different high CPA rates, high revenue share rates with different networks, not the biggest ones like Amazon and Google. You can't really negotiate with them, but with many of the kind of medium-sized networks, there, there is quite a bit of space to, to improve your commissions generally. We have all kinds of uh, private deals with different companies that don't actually have public affiliate programs. It allows us to monetize our sites better. And uh, yeah, just in general, like scale, uh, even at sort of like medium scale, like ours, there is some benefits to uh, to doing things at scale.
0: That makes sense. And so, yeah, if, if you have, you know, the same team, the same strategies, uh, bigger buying power uh, as a group of businesses. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. And uh, one more thing is is also we try to cluster sites, businesses in, in the same niches. So then we, we become quite familiar with the specific niche and we can use the same resources. We can, uh, the sites could be co-promoted together. And so that creates quite a bit of synergy as well.
0: Yeah. So with that, do you have like an overarching investment thesis, uh, that also includes like, cause that's something I've always been thinking of, right? I have my businesses, I have my sort of niche, you know, if I were to buy something completely unrelated, does that really have the synergies I want, right? Is that the leverage? Some people do that, right? It just buy a business that makes sense for them uh, from the numbers like on its own and then try to grow it. But it, it sounds like you want to try to more group things together, which increases your dependency on a certain sector maybe, I guess, but you can use the synergies. What is your thought on that?
1: Yeah. Uh, so previously we've been working more on a short term I'm going kind of flipping uh, model where we would be mm-hmm. buying sites that are good to, to improve quickly and then the result for a profit. And uh, that was usually smaller deals. Now, as we are doing bigger deals and um, usually like our deals are around mid, mid six figures in US dollars on average. So now we focus more longer term uh, deals, like, like higher quality businesses, high quality assets. So that, that changed things uh, a bit. And a lot depends on the on the time frame you are looking at. So if we are looking at a time frame of three years, three to five years, let's say, and then we are looking at high quality businesses, high quality assets, then uh, a lot of that is understanding the risks, understanding the opportunities to grow. And so uh, I would say in general our model is is like. opportunistic, because we want to find good deals, we want to find good opportunities that have growth, regardless of of niche or industry, that we have Mm -hmm. a clear path to growth. And then 50% sort of, um, like what I mentioned, being able to use our advantages uh, in these specific niches and uh, types of businesses. Hiring a perfect team
0: isn't a piece of cake, is it? To find a good candidate, you need to post a job on multiple job boards, review like a hundred CVs, conduct at least a dozen initial interviews to make sure there's at least a single specialist you would like to hire. But with Superb Hire by Trust you can forget about all of the hiring headache. Find, meet, and hire skilled and dedicated assistants ready to take over marketing, sales, administrative, customer support, data entry, or other tasks, contribute to your business growth and help you reach your goals. Superb Hire takes care of the entire recruitment process. You just have to show up for the final interview. Visit superbhire.com and book a free no commitment call to learn more. It's superbhire.com. You mentioned the, the time frame you're looking at. How does one decide what time frame to even look at, right? I'm an investor now, uh, I don't buy or build this to run it for like Twenty years, or maybe I am right. How how should one decide that?
1: Well, I think every business has a certain life cycle in a way, and uh, you, you learn you learn to see that by looking at many many different businesses over a longer period of time. And then, uh, as I was doing that, I started to see that there are many many smaller sites that, from just the way that we are built, the, the niche, the of the risks, the risk factors, and so on. They are not really built to last. So Mm -hmm. these type of assets, you you don't want to hold on to them for a long time. You would want to go buy, improve something and then quickly resell before the risks catch up with you and become basically more relevant than the growth opportunities. Mm -hmm. And then there is the assets that are just a lot more solid and stable. And, uh, let's say you're looking at a a business that's been around for 20 years and has been like mostly stable for for the last 10 years. You know, it's unlikely that it would, uh, just completely drop in the next year or two, as long as, you know, nothing major is happening in, in the industry or in, in so on. And that so, uh, yeah. So sort of understanding, uh, life cycle of each of those businesses, that's, that's important. And then, uh, adapting the strategy based on that.
0: Now, when, when you, when you have your, you have, well, you run multiple funds at this point each fund has a couple of businesses. How many businesses do you do you run concurrently? You said 10 to 15, right?
1: Yeah, 10 to 15. It's uh, so difficult to give you an exact number because there are some that are like small, some that uh-huh. are like one business, but has like three sides. And so it, so it depends how you, how you kind of calculate that. And then some that we manage for clients, some they manage for ourselves, some we manage for our funds, but yeah, between that, so like around 15, let's say. And typically we have a few that are bigger there. We focus more time and a few that are smaller that, that require less less time and effort.
0: Which, which really is an interesting thing to look at because what is, you know, a lot of people say you should really focus on one business, grow it well. You know, you can have a lot of results. There's usually a lot of growth opportunities you're not looking at. Well, obviously funds don't do that because they're they're obviously meant to, to buy more businesses. How do you keep focus with one team on the various businesses and understand what to do with, with each of them and keep like a separate roadmap or or how does that look like?
1: Yeah, I would say for for most people, the best strategy is the one that really fits best with the advantages and the disadvantages. So there would certainly be some people and some companies, where are uh, just focusing on one thing, one business is best, and and then there would be others who are better at managing a portfolio of businesses. So we have we have developed all sorts of different processes and and SOPs and uh, and structures to to manage that effectively. So for example, we have the like a little link building team. And then like all sorts of structures around that so that we can effectively build links for all, all all the businesses in our portfolio. And then we have that little content management team so that we can manage uh content requests for multiple uh, businesses and fulfill them. And then we have the team of people who who optimize, upload content. We have a small technical team, Uh, we have managers and it sort of comes together.
0: That makes sense. But that that also means that the one common thing you're looking uh, at seems like always when you're buying these businesses is a certain SEO advantage that you could have, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's our main uh, focus is SEO. So all the SaaS businesses that we own uh, and owned before as well, were primarily receiving traffic from, from SEO, from organic Google traffic. Mm-hmm. And that's where we specialize. We also have a bunch of sites with with social traffic, but in all of them, the, the organic traffic is primary source.
0: Okay. That makes sense because that means that essentially you're using a very similar playbook, processes, teams yeah. to grow all of these businesses, which, you know, in turn means that you don't actually have that much clutter across all of them. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and to be, to be fair, we, that like, that's obvious now, but (laughs) we didn't realize that (laughs) until they tried the opposite, it failed. So, (laughs) so uh, a year or two ago, we had a bigger team and a bigger portfolio and we were kind of buying all kinds of sites and trying to manage them and grow them and see what would happen. And then they learned, okay, maybe that's a bit too much. Maybe they should just focus a little bit more.
0: And because you, you say, uh, which ties into that, that, that you mostly focus on content businesses, but also the occasional SaaS. So very specific type of SaaS or because it seems like maybe you'd prefer content thing, but, but some SaaS is okay. So you probably also the one that can be grown using SEO, probably one that doesn't need a, you know, 20 people development team. I take, right?
1: Right. So I look at it as, uh, as a business that, that is, ba- that is content based. Even our sales businesses, I look at them as just mm-hmm. content based businesses that primarily receive traffic for content, but then the monetization methods might, might vary. Right. So some of them are monetized just through ads, display ads. Some of them sell digital products. Some of them affiliate and some of them have sales products that they sell. But, uh, I still kind of look at them as content sites. Well, we usually call them sales because that, that sounds more lucrative. But uh, we, we sort of treat them in a similar way as we do other content sites. We have the SEO part. They just have a little bit more uh, technical uh, parts and management parts than the other sites do. We try to avoid things that are too complicated technically. So we certainly wouldn't buy anything that needs like a dedicated team of developers. You only buy sales businesses that are fairly straightforward, don't have too much code, don't have too much complexity. And that are not written in some obscure, like programming language that that no one knows. So something that's easy to maintain. Also, as long as it meets those requirements and it seems like a reasonable product that we can develop further as well, that's good for us. No,
0: that's smart. It makes a lot of sense. So you do really have, you do have a niche, but it's more on the growth opportunities that you see and you combine that. That this is the one that you're trying, you're trying to find deals with, with this commonality that fits your team, fits your skill, your expertise to grow. So that makes a lot of sense. What other tips would you give to someone who maybe is currently running a SaaS business, but is already on the, yeah, I would say more managing field than the day to day or doesn't have a SaaS business at all, but they would like to become an investor and buy one or more of these properties. What are maybe mistakes they should avoid or or generally things they should pay attention to?
1: Yeah, let me share some lessons that, that I've learned from So, So we've had we've had free sales businesses that we've managed over the past couple of years and and many smaller sales businesses before as well. One thing I've learned is that it's always uh, more complex than you expect. Like there has never been a sales business I've looked at or would be required that was just easier than I expected. It's always like things are always more complex. There is always more things, more more different parts that that sort of need to be taken care of or more unexpected issues that, that might arise later on. So first thing I would say is just accept that that's probably how it's going to be, that you might not be able to predict everything, that there might be some unexpected things. And that it's it's really complex and uh, it's important to understand the competition also to really see where it can grow well the biggest thing i would say is really understanding the customers and the product like the product fit for the customers one mistake we've made is that we acquired this this business uh that that seemed like it was doing well the numbers looked good and everything but we didn't really look deep enough to understand so the product the, the customers and whether they liked it or not and it turns out there was quite a quite a high uh, return rate basically quite a high sort of refund rate and it was kind of hidden in the numbers but it came up a little bit later so we did manage to to uh to fix that but it's very important also to to uh to really look deeper into how the customers interact with the product mm-hmm. and in terms of growth I would say, depending on the size of the business, uh, you can see how many channels you should focus on to to gain traffic, to gain customers. So for smaller businesses that are, uh, let's say, like somewhere in, in in the five figures or six figures price range, generally you only need one one source of traffic, like one main source of customer acquisition, or possibly two. So one mistake that people often make is they just uh, spread their efforts to thin and they they go and try like five or ten different ways of of getting traffic. They put their ads on on Facebook on Google on on LinkedIn and like everywhere and and then everything sort of works but a little bit. So if just focus on one 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 way to get the traffic then it, it will usually work better in that sense.
0: Would you say that with your you know your experience of having bought a business where you didn't really initially see the customer fit issues? That it's a problem when an outside investor who's really, especially for a SaaS, maybe even more so than a content site, that really doesn't understand the niche too much, doesn't really have a vision for it. And the business might even be doing well, right? It might not be hidden in the numbers. It might actually be doing okay. But that there is no vision to to really you know, out-compete what's out there, to to build something, to continue building something that's better. Because... What I see is SaaS is or can be extremely fast paced, right? There's a couple of uh, vendors who might be actively throwing out features or trying to find a better edge at something. And if you don't see where the market is going or what clients really need, which changes over time, that that might just be a death sentence in, well, maybe not one year, but two, three.
1: Yeah, yeah, Victor, exactly. That's that's the point and uh, that's also the danger of, of kind of going into different niches and being more opportunistic that we are not as familiar with, with, with some, some niches and some areas. So that might require a lot of research and a really deep dive into understanding how this type of SaaS businesses work. And so there, there are things we might not know until we, we try it. What
0: tips would you give to someone who would like to sell their SaaS? Now what what should somebody pay attention to make it more attractive to a buyer like like you and what is a common mistake that these sellers make
1: yeah the biggest thing to make it more attractive to someone like us is have a very clear L, have very clear numbers that people can look at that also that's very easy to see okay this is profit this is the uh, the revenue this is these are the expenses these are the different columns where the expenses are and so on and then also take the effort to maybe optimize to reduce some of your expenses to increase some revenues where you can maybe uh work on fixing some of the issues and so on that's one thing uh, the other thing is you want to have a story you want to show the potential buyer uh, where can it go How how f- like how can you grow it? What are some much bigger competitors you can catch up to, and sort of build a story of what is really needed to to do that. And also just be uh, be be open. Be are, like be transparent about things. Often people think that they might hide some details, they might not show some things, that'll be okay. But a professional buyer like us would generally know right away if you're hiding something. So uh, sort of be be open. Uh, and also be flexible the structure of the deal might be different than what you initially expect so it's good to be diff- to be more flexible if you are dealing with a professional buyer if you are dealing with someone who is more of a first time buyer then make sure that you have someone to to help you maybe a broker maybe an advisor or something something like mm-hmm. that or maybe use an escrow service because often i've seen what happens is then then both parties are not as experienced. The last moment of the deal, you know, emotions run run high, and deals often kind of get cancelled for the, the strangest of reasons. <laughs> and, and so that's why it's good to have like someone who really knows what they're doing on your side or, or mediating between you two. So I, I used to run a brokerage firm as well called Dilfro Brokerage. I sold it last year with my partner. And uh, we had this deal for a sauce business for three million dollars, and uh, it's like we went through all, all the rounds of negotiations and so on. And the buyer was was pretty experienced. The seller was not experienced. I mean, he was experienced in business, but he's never sold a business before. <laughs> and so what happened is, after like all the due diligence and all the stages before, just like signing the final agreement, the seller kind of. Was a little bit spooked and he was just like nervous and anxious about things Uh, and he uh wrote like a slightly insulting email to the buyer and that that you know offended the buyer and then he wrote another slightly slightly offensive response and that escalated a little bit (laughs) 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 and by by the time we, we we realized what happened myself and my partner and, and tried to you know to mediate. It was a bit too late to fix it, <laughs> and, and the deal just <laughs> fell apart. And, and so these things happen quite often. So as a seller, uh, yeah, make sure that that you have someone professional to help you if it's your first time selling a business.
0: That that actually makes a lot of sense, uh, and it's probably very valuable. Can you give an example of a SaaS that you bought, grew, and sold, and you know what it was, how you did it? I don't know if you can or want to share any numbers would of course be highly appreciated. But that'd be super interesting.
1: Yes, yeah, so there was one business that we acquired uh, about I think about three years ago mm-hmm. and then we sold it about one and a half years ago. I cannot share the exact like details and URL, but I can share sure. the numbers and some and some more details of what we've done. So we acquired it for about 50000 dollars We actually bought it on Flipper. I find that Flipper is 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 still a, a decent place to to find interesting deals. Uh, of course that was 3 years ago now there are uh some of these new places as well there where you can find sales businesses. And so we have discussed with the seller and so on it seemed like a you know a non-reasonable guy from from US and he was just a founder is like he had different different businesses different sales businesses and this one took off and so he decided to sell it and so he can focus his attention on other businesses. And, uh, we got a reasonably good price, good deal. We, we bought it, we transferred all the accounts and so on. And then we, uh, there were quite a few things that we did not, uh, like notice from the beginning that we realized later on, but we, we managed to, to fix them, to uh, improve them and so on. And we had a good guy from our team managing it. He, he really was on top of things. And so in the two years that we operated it, uh, as I recall, managed to roughly double the, the revenue, it's like, like between 80% to like a hundred percent growth, which was, I think it's pretty good. And, mm-hmm. and then we sold the business for about, uh, like 160,000 or so. So it was, it was a good return and, and, uh, and as part of the sale, we assisted the, the buyer to, to take things over and there was like a gradual transition process and so on. And the business is still operating. Uh, recently, I, uh, I checked up on that a few months ago and it's doing quite well. It uh, about more or less about the same revenue, maybe slightly higher than at the time of sales. So it was quite stable. Yeah. And the, the SaaS business is, is, is actually very, very simple. Like it's using uh, one of those big, big services that you can have an API. And then it's just like setting that service to a specific niche of customers kind of reselling that service for a really high markup. And that's basically it. So the entire code base is like, I don't know, like a file or two, a little bit of, um, <laughs> code. code, well, pro- probably a little bit, probably more than that, but um, sure. like it's, it's, I mean, it's something that we had a programmer from India, if a relatively inexpensive, um.
0: Yeah, so it's not cool. something
1: that needs a lot of programmers. So It was fairly easy because it was all written in PHP. It was fairly written, and, and at some point we even uh, rewrote the entire code, and that took uh, maybe a few days. <laughs> wow, so it's okay, not, that it is quick. Yeah, it wasn't very complex, but at the same time, it's also something that it's not so easy to grow. So we were adding over these two years. We owned it. We were adding different. We try to add different features. We tried to like ask the customers what they wanted. We tried to like improve the pricing, experimenting with pricing was quite useful by way. Uh, mm-hmm. like, yeah, we've tried to add some different add on, uh, things like extra products and so on. So it was quite uh quite an interesting experience also. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a very solid product. It was a very like solid business. So interesting thing. I noticed that at some point. So all the traffic was organic from Google. At some point, it was hit by a Google update, and it lost like, I think like fifty percent of traffic, or more than that, or sixty percent of traffic. And uh, the interesting thing is, during that period, the revenue was stable. The revenue didn't drop; it was stable because it was mostly subscription based. So subscriptions didn't change.
0: So it didn't churn much.
1: Yeah, it didn't churn much. And and then uh, we managed to get it back to reverse the the Google penalty, and the traffic came back. And if you look at like the revenue numbers, it's, it, it doesn't look like, uh, you know, like this, like it dropped and mm-hmm, then, mm-hmm. then got up. It's just like more stable. And this cost is very different from our display sites or affiliate sites where if the traffic drop, revenue drops immediately. So it's right. an interesting one. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And that's why the multiples are higher, right? For the stability yeah, yeah, of SAS, yeah. sort of. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I highly appreciate it. This was was super interesting. Where can people find you either to sell their business, invest, or, you know, just maybe ask for advice?
1: Yeah, sure. People are welcome to look me up on Facebook or contact me at Michael at main Magnate for email and uh, check out our podcast, The Domain Magnate Show, where we uh, share other different tips on, on buying and selling businesses and talk to other industry leaders about this cool. and uh, growing businesses.
0: I'll definitely check it out as well. Thank you so much. Have a good night now in Chiang Mai and speak then. Thanks, Victor. Good to chat. This show is brought to you by Trustshoring, your friendly concierge to find reliable and tested software developers from Eastern Europe. We recruit full-time developers, match you to an experienced software house that's ideal for your requirements, or recommend a reliable freelancer for smaller projects. But most importantly... You benefit from our experience of developing software remotely for almost 10 years. We give you one-on-one guidance all the way so you're never lost. Stop the tedious hiring or vetting process and get matched to reliable talent. Sign up for a free consulting call with one of our experts today. Go to TrustShoring.com.